Chapters twelve through fourteen of Mike. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mike, a public school story by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter twelve Mike gets his chance. The headmaster was quite bland and businesslike about it all. There were no impassioned addresses from the dais. He did not tell the school that it ought to be ashamed of itself, nor did he say that he should never have thought it of them. Prayers on the Saturday morning were marked by no unusual features. There was, indeed, a stir of excitement when he came to the edge of the dais and cleared his throat as a preliminary to making an announcement. "'Now for it,' thought the school. This was the announcement. There has been an outbreak of chicken pox in the town. All streets except the high street will in consequence be out of bounds till further notice. He then gave the nod of dismissal. The school streamed downstairs, marvelling. The less astute of the picnickers, unmindful of the homely proverb about hallooing before leaving the wood, were openly exulting. It seemed plain to them that the headmaster, baffled by the magnitude of the thing, had resolved to pursue the safe course of ignoring it altogether. To lie low is always a shrewd piece of tactics, and there seemed no reason why the head should not have decided on it in the present instance. Neville Smith was among these premature rejoicers. "'I say,' he chuckled, overtaking Wyatt in the cloisters, "'this is all right, isn't it? He's funked it.' I thought he would. Finds the job too big to tackle. Why, it was damping. My dear chap, he said, it's not over yet by a long chalk. It hasn't started yet. What do you mean? Why didn't he say anything about it in Hall, then? Why should he? Have you ever had tick at a shop? Of course I have. What do you mean? Why? Well, they didn't send in the bill right away, but it came all right. "'Do you think he's going to do something, then?' "'Rather. You wait.' Wyatt was right. Between ten and eleven on Wednesdays and Saturdays, old Bates, the school sergeant, used to copy out the names of those who were in extra lesson and post them outside the school shop. The school inspected the list during the quarter to eleven interval. Today, rushing to the shop for its midday bun, the school was aware of a vast sheet of paper where usually there was but a small one. They surged round it. Buns were forgotten. What was it? Then the meaning of the notice flashed upon them. The headmaster had acted. This bloated document was the extra lesson list, swollen with names as a stream swells with rain. It was a comprehensive document. It left out little. The following boys will go in to extra lesson this afternoon and next Wednesday, it began, and the following boys numbered four hundred. Bates must have got writer's cramp, said Klaus, as he read the huge scroll. Wyatt met Mike after school as they went back to the house. Seen the extra list, he remarked. None of the kids are in it, I notice, only the bigger fellows. "'Rather a good thing. I'm glad you got off.' "'Thanks,' said Mike, who was walking a little stiffly. "'I don't know what you call getting off. It seems to me you're the chaps who got off.' "'How do you mean?' "'We got tanned.' 
said Mike, ruefully. What? Yes, everybody below the upper fourth. Wyatt roared with laughter. By gad, he said, he is an old sportsman. I never saw such a man. He lowers all records. Glad you think it funny. You wouldn't have if you'd been me. I was one of the first to get it. He was quite fresh. Sting? Should think it did. Well, buck up. Don't break down. I'm not breaking down, said Mike indignantly. All right, I thought you weren't. Anyhow, you're better off than I am. An extra's nothing much, said Mike. It is, when it happens to come on the same day as the MCC match. Oh, by Jove, I forgot. That's next Wednesday, isn't it? You won't be able to play. No. I say, what rot! It is, rather. Still, nobody can say I didn't ask for it. If one goes out of one's way to beg and beseech the old man to put one in extra, it would be a little rough on him to curse him when he does it. I should be awfully sick if it were me. Well, it isn't you, so you're all right. You'll probably get my place in the team. Mike smiled dutifully at what he supposed to be a humorous sally. Or rather, one of the places, continued Wyatt, who seemed to be sufficiently in earnest. They'll put a bowler in instead of me, probably Druce. But there'll be several vacancies. Let's see, me, Adams, Ash, any more? No, that's the lot. I should think they'd give you a chance. You needn't rot, said Mike uncomfortably. He had his daydreams, like everybody else, and they always took the form of playing for the first eleven, and incidentally making a century in record time. To have to listen while the subject was talked about lightly made him hot and prickly all over. "'I'm not rotting,' said Wyatt seriously. "'I'll suggest it to Burgess tonight.' "'You don't think there's any chance of it, really, do you?' said Mike awkwardly. "'I don't see why not. Buck up in the scratch game this afternoon. Fielding, especially. Burgess is simply mad on fielding. I don't blame him, either, especially as he's a bowler himself. He'd shove a man into the team like a shot, whatever his batting was like, if his fielding was something extra special. So you field like a demon this afternoon, and I'll carry on the good work in the evening.' "'I say,' said Mike, overcome, "'it's awfully decent of you, Wyatt.' Billy Burgess, captain of Rickon Cricket, was a genial giant who seldom allowed himself to be ruffled. The present was one of the rare occasions on which he permitted himself that luxury. Wyatt found him in his study shortly before lock-up, full of strange oaths, like the soldier in Shakespeare. "'You rotter! You rotter! You worm!' he observed crisply as Wyatt appeared. "'Dear old Billy,' said Wyatt, "'come on, give me a kiss and let's be friends. "'You—' "'William, William!' "'If it wasn't illegal, I'd like to tie you and Ash and that blackguard Adams up in a big sack and drop you into the river. "'And I'd jump on the sack first. "'What do you mean by letting the team down like this? "'I know you were at the bottom of it all.' He struggled into his shirt. He was changing after a bath and his face popped wrathfully out at the other end. "'I'm awfully sorry, Bill,' said Wyatt. "'The fact is, in the excitement of the moment, the MCC match went clean out of my mind.' "'You haven't got a mind,' grumbled Burgess. "'You've got a cheap brown paper substitute. That's your trouble.' Wyatt turned the conversation tactfully. "'How many wickets did you get today?' he asked. Eight. 
for a hundred and three. I was on the spot. Young Jackson caught a hot one off me at third man. That kid's good. Why don't you play him against the MCC on Wednesday? said Wyatt, jumping at his opportunity. What? Are you sitting on my left shoe? No, there it is in the corner. Right hole. What were you saying? Why not play young Jackson for the first? Too small. Rot. What does size matter? Cricket isn't footer. Besides, he isn't small. He's as tall as I am. I suppose he is. Dash, I've dropped my stud. Wyatt waited patiently till he had retrieved it. Then he returned to the attack. He's as good a bat as his brother, and a better field. Old Bob can't field for toffee. I will say that for him. Dropped a sitter off me today. Why the deuce fellows can't hold catches when they drop slowly into their mouths? I'm hanged if I can see. You play him, said Wyatt. Just give him a trial. That kid's a genius at cricket. He's going to be better than any of his brothers, even Joe. Give him a shot. Burgess hesitated. You know, it's a bit risky, he said. With you three lunatics out of the team, we can't afford to try many experiments. Better stick to the men at the top of the second. Wyatt got up and kicked the wall as a vent for his feelings. You rotter, he said. Can't you see when you've got a good man? Here's this kid waiting for you, ready-made with a style like Trumper's, and you rave about top men in the second. Chaps who play forward at everything and pat half-volleys back to the bowler. Do you realize that your only chance of being known to posterity is as the man who gave M. Jackson his colors at Rickon? In a few years he'll be playing for England, and you'll think it a favor if he nods to you in the pav at Lord's. When you're a white-haired old man, you'll go doddering about gassing to your grandchildren, poor kids, how you discovered M. Jackson. It'll be the only thing they'll respect you for. Wyatt stopped for breath. All right, said Burgess. I'll think it over. Frightful gift of the gab you've got, Wyatt. Good, said Wyatt. Think it over. And don't forget what I said about the grandchildren. You would like little Wyatt Burgess and the other little Burgesses to respect you in your old age, wouldn't you? Very well, then. So long. The bell went ages ago. I shall be locked out. On the Monday morning, Mike passed the notice board just as Burgess turned away from pinning up the list of the team to play the MCC. He read it, and his heart missed a beat. For bottom but one, just above the W.B. Burgess, was a name that leaped from the paper at him. His own name. Chapter 13 The MCC Match if the day happens to be fine, there is a curious dreamlike atmosphere about the opening stages of a first eleven match. Everything seems hushed and expectant. The rest of the school have gone in after the interval at eleven o'clock, and you are alone on the grounds with a cricket bag. The only signs of life are a few pedestrians on the road beyond the railings, and one or two blazer and flannel clad forms in the pavilion. The sense of isolation is trying to the nerves, and a school team usually bats 25% better after lunch when the strangeness has worn off. Mike walked across from Wayne's, where he had changed, feeling quite hollow. He could almost have cried with pure fright. Bob had shouted after him from a window as he passed Donaldson's to wait so that they could walk over together, but conversation was the last thing Mike desired at that moment. 
He had almost reached the pavilion when one of the MCC team came down the steps, saw him, and stopped dead. "'By Jove, Saunders!' cried Mike. "'Why, Master Mike!' The professional beamed, and quite suddenly the lost, hopeless feeling left Mike. He felt as cheerful as if he and Saunders had met in the meadow at home and were just going to begin a little quiet net practice. "'Why, Master Mike, you don't mean to say you're playing for the school already?' Mike nodded happily. "'Isn't it ripping?' he said. Saunders slapped his leg in a sort of ecstasy. "'Didn't I always say it, sir?' he chuckled. "'Wasn't I right? I used to say to myself, "'It'd be a pretty good school team that'd leave you out. "'Of course, I'm only playing as a sub, you know. Three chaps are an extra, and I got one of the places. "'Well, you'll make a hundred today, Master Mike, "'and then they'll have to put you in. "'Wish I could.' "'Master Joe's come down with the club,' said Saunders. "'Joe? Has he really? How ripping! "'Hello, here he is. Hello, Joe!' "'The greatest of all the Jacksons was descending the pavilion steps "'with the gravity befitting an all-England batsman. "'He stopped short as Saunders had done. "'Mike, you aren't playing!' "'Yes.' "'Well, I'm hanged. Young Marvel, isn't he, Saunders?' "'He is, sir,' said Saunders. "'Got all the strokes. "'I always said it, Master Joe, only wants the strength.' "'Joe took Mike by the shoulder "'and walked him off in the direction of a man "'in a Zingari blazer who was bowling slows "'to another of the MCC team. "'Mike recognized him with awe "'as one of the three best amateur wicket-keepers in the country. "'What do you think of this?' said Joe, "'exhibiting Mike, who grinned bashfully.' Age ten, last birthday, and playing for the school. You are only ten, aren't you, Mike? Brother of yours? asked the wicket-keeper. Probably too proud to own the relationship, but he is. Isn't there any end to you, Jacksons? demanded the wicket-keeper, in an aggrieved tone. I never saw such a family. This is our star. You wait till he gets at us today. Saunders is our only bowler, and Mike's been brought up on Saunders. "'You'd better win the toss if you want a chance of getting a knock "'and lifting your average out of the minuses.' "'I have won the toss,' said the other with dignity. "'Do you think I don't know the elementary duties of a captain?' "'The school went out to field with mixed feelings. "'The wicket was hard and true, "'which would have made it pleasant to be going in first. "'On the other hand, they would feel decidedly better and fitter for centuries "'after the game had been in progress an hour or so. "'Burgess was glad as a private individual, sorry as a captain. "'For himself, the sooner he got hold of the ball and began to bowl, the better he liked it. "'As a captain, he realized that a side with Joe Jackson on it, "'not to mention the other first-class men, "'was not a side to which he would have preferred to give away an advantage.' Mike was feeling that by no possibility could he hold the simplest catch, and hoping that nothing would come his way. Bob, conscious of being an uncertain field, was feeling just the same. The MCC opened with Joe and a man in an Oxford authentic cap. The beginning of the game was quiet. Burgess's Yorker was nearly too much for the latter in the first over, but he contrived to chop it away, and the pair gradually settled down. At twenty, Joe began to open his shoulders. Twenty became forty with disturbing swiftness, 
and Burgess tried a change of bowling. It seemed for one instant as if the move had been a success, for Joe, still taking wrists, tried to late-cut a rising ball, and snicked it straight into Bob's hands at second slip. It was the easiest of slip-catches, but Bob fumbled it, dropped it, almost held it a second time, and finally let it fall miserably to the ground. It was a moment too painful for words. He rolled the ball back to the bowler in silence. One of those weary periods followed when the batsman's defence seems to the fieldsman absolutely impregnable. There was a sickening inevitableness in the way in which every ball was played with the very centre of the bat, and, as usual, just when things seemed most hopeless, relief came. The authentic, getting in front of his wicket to pull one of the simplest long hops ever seen on a cricket field, missed it and was LBW, and the next ball upset the newcomer's leg stump. The school revived. Bowlers and field were infused with a new life. Another wicket, two stumps knocked out of the ground by Burgess, helped the thing on. When the bell rang for the end of morning school, five wickets were down for a hundred and thirteen. But from the end of school till lunch things went very wrong indeed. Joe was still in at one end, invincible, and at the other was the great wicket-keeper, and the pair of them suddenly began to force the pace till the bowling was in a tangled knot. Four after four, all round the wicket, with never a chance or a miss-hit to vary the monotony. Two hundred went up, and two hundred and fifty. Then Joe reached his century and was stumped next ball. Then came lunch. The rest of the innings was like the gentle rain after the thunderstorm. Runs came with fair regularity, but wickets fell at intervals, and when the wicket-keeper was run out at length for a lively sixty-three, the end was very near. Saunders, coming in last, hit two boundaries, and was then caught by Mike. His second hit had just lifted the MCC total over the three hundred. Three hundred is a score that takes some making on any ground, but on a fine day it was not an unusual total for the Ricken eleven. Some years before against Ripton they had run up four hundred and sixteen, and only last season had massacred a very weak team of old Rickinians with a score that only just missed the fourth hundred. Unfortunately, on the present occasion there was scarcely time, unless the bowling happened to get completely collared, to make the runs. It was a quarter to four when the innings began, and stumps were to be drawn at a quarter to seven. A hundred an hour is quick work. Burgess, however, was optimistic, as usual. "'Better have a go for them,' he said to Berridge and Marsh, the school first pair." Following out this courageous advice, Berridge, after hitting three boundaries in his first two overs, was stumped halfway through the third. After this, things settled down. Morris, the first wicket-man, was a thoroughly sound bat, a little on the slow side, but exceedingly hard to shift. He and Marsh proceeded to play themselves in until it looked as if they were likely to stay till the drawing of stumps. A comfortable, rather somnolent feeling settled upon the school. A long stand at cricket is a soothing sight to watch. There was an absence of hurry about the batsmen which harmonized well with the drowsy summer afternoon. And yet runs were coming at a fair pace. The hundred went up at five o'clock. 
the hundred and fifty at half-past. Both batsmen were completely at home, and the MCC third-change bowlers had been put on. Then the great wicket-keeper took off the pads and gloves, and the fieldsmen retired to posts at the extreme edge of the ground. "'Lobs,' said Burgess. "'By Jove, I wish I was in.' It seemed to be the general opinion among the members of the Rickon Eleven on the pavilion balcony that Morris and Marsh were in luck. The team did not grudge them their good fortune because they had earned it, but they were distinctly envious. Lobs are the most dangerous, insinuating things in the world. Everybody knows, in theory, the right way to treat them. Everybody knows that the man who is content not to try to score more than a single cannot get out to them. Yet nearly everybody does get out to them. It was the same story today. The first over yielded six runs, all through gentle taps along the ground. In the second, Marsh hit an over-pitched one along the ground to the terrace bank. The next ball he swept round to the leg boundary, and that was the end of Marsh. He saw himself scoring at the rate of twenty-four and over. Off the last ball he was stumped by several feet, having done himself credit by scoring seventy. The long stand was followed, as usual, by a series of disasters. Marsh's wicket had fallen at a hundred and eighty. Ellerby left at a hundred and eighty-six. By the time the scoring board registered two hundred, five wickets were down, three of them victims to the lobs. Morris was still in at one end. He had refused to be tempted. He was jogging on steadily to his century. Bob Jackson went in next, with instructions to keep his eye on the lob man. For a time things went well. Saunders, who had gone on to bowl again after a rest, seemed to give Morris no trouble, and Bob put him through the slips with apparent ease. Twenty runs were added when the lob bowler once more got in his deadly work. Bob, letting alone a ball wide of the off-stump, under the impression that it was going to break away, was disagreeably surprised to find it break in instead, and hit the wicket. The bowler smiled sadly, as if he hated to have to do these things. Mike's heart jumped as he saw the bales go. It was his turn next. Two hundred and twenty-nine, said Burgess, and it's ten past six. "'No good trying for the runs now. Stick in,' he added to Mike. "'That's all you've got to do.' "'All?' Mike felt as if he was being strangled. His heart was racing like the engines of a motor. He knew his teeth were chattering. He wished he could stop them. What a time Bob was taking to get back to the pavilion. He wanted to rush out and get the thing over. At last he arrived, and Mike, fumbling at a glove, tottered out into the sunshine. He heard miles and miles away a sound of clapping, and a thin shrill noise as if somebody were screaming in the distance. As a matter of fact, several members of his form and of the junior day-room at Wayne's nearly burst themselves at that moment. At the wickets he felt better. Bob had fallen to the last ball of the over, and Morris, standing ready for Saunders's delivery, looked so calm and certain of himself that it was impossible to feel entirely without hope and self-confidence. Mike knew that Morris had made ninety-eight, and he supposed that Morris knew that he was very near his century, yet he seemed to be absolutely undisturbed. Mike drew courage from his attitude. Morris pushed the first ball away to leg. Mike would have liked to have run, too, but— 
short leg had retrieved the ball as he reached the crease. The moment had come, the moment which he had experienced only in dreams, and in the dreams he was always full of confidence, and invariably hit a boundary, sometimes a drive, sometimes a cut, but always a boundary. "'To leg, sir,' said the umpire. "'Don't be in a funk,' said a voice. "'Play straight, and you can't get out.' It was Joe who had taken the gloves when the wicket-keeper went on to bowl. Mike grinned, wryly but gratefully. Saunders was beginning his run. It was all so home-like that for a moment Mike felt himself again. How often he had seen those two little skips on the jump. It was like being in the paddock again, with Marjorie and the dogs waiting by the railings to fetch the ball if he made a drive. Saunders ran to the crease and bowled. Now Saunders was a conscientious man, and doubtless bowled the very best ball that he possibly could. On the other hand, it was Mike's first appearance for the school, and Saunders, besides being conscientious, was undoubtedly kind-hearted. It is useless to speculate as to whether he was trying to bowl his best that ball. If so, he failed signally. It was a half-volley, just the right distance away from the off-stump, the sort of ball Mike was wont to send nearly through the net at home. The next moment the dreams had come true. The umpire was signalling to the scoring box, the school was shouting, extra cover was trotting to the boundary to fetch the ball, and Mike was blushing and wondering whether it was bad form to grin. From that ball onwards, all was for the best in this best of all possible worlds. Saunders bowled no more half-volleys, but Mike played everything that he did bowl. He met the lobs with a bat like a barn door. Even the departure of Morris caught in the slips off Saunders's next over for a chanceless hundred and five did not disturb him. All nervousness had left him. He felt equal to the situation. Burgess came in and began to hit out as if he meant to knock off the runs. The bowling became a shade loose. Twice he was given full tosses to leg, which he hit to the terrace bank. Half-past six chimed, and two hundred and fifty went up on the telegraph board. Burgess continued to hit. Mike's whole soul was concentrated on keeping up his wicket. There was only Reeves to follow him, and Reeves was a victim to the first straight ball. Burgess had to hit because it was the only game he knew, but he himself must simply stay in. The hands of the clock seemed to have stopped. Then, suddenly, he heard the umpire say, "'Last over,' and he settled down to keep those six balls out of his wicket. The lob bowler had taken himself off, and the Oxford Authentic had gone on, fast left hand. The first ball was short and wide of the off stump. Mike let it alone. Number two, Yorker. "'Got him!' Three, straight half volley. Mike played it back to the bowler. Four, beat him and missed the wicket by an inch. Five, another Yorker. Down on it again in the old familiar way. All was well. The match was a draw now, whatever happened to him. He hit out almost at a venture at the last ball, and mid-off, jumping, just failed to reach it. It hummed over his head and ran like a streak along the turf and up the bank, and a great howl of delight went up from the school as the umpire took off the bales. Mike walked away from the wickets with Joe and the wicket-keeper. 
"'I'm sorry about your nose, Joe,' said the wicket-keeper, in tones of grave solicitude. "'What's wrong with it?' "'At present,' said the wicket-keeper, "'nothing. But in a few years I'm afraid it's going to be put badly out of joint.'" Chapter Fourteen, A Slight Imbroglio Mike got his third eleven colours after the MCC match. As he had made twenty-three not out in a crisis in a first eleven match, this may not seem an excessive reward, but it was all that he expected. One had to take the rungs of the ladder singly at Ricken. First one was given one's third eleven cap. That meant you are a promising man, and we have our eye on you. Then came the second colours. They might mean anything from, well, here you are, you won't get any higher, so you may as well have the thing now, to, this is just to show that we still have our eye on you. Mike was a certainty now for the second, but it needed more than one performance to secure the first cap. I told you so, said Wyatt naturally to Burgess after the match. He's not bad, said Burgess. I'll give him another shot. But Burgess, as has been pointed out, was not a person who ever became gushing with enthusiasm. So Wilkins, of the schoolhouse, who had played twice for the first eleven, dropped down into the second, as many a good man had done before him, and Mike got his place in the next match against the gentlemen of the county. Unfortunately for him, the visiting team, however gentlemanly, were not brilliant cricketers, at any rate as far as bowling was concerned. The school won the toss, went in first, and made 316 for five wickets, Morris making another placid century. The innings was declared closed before Mike had a chance of distinguishing himself. In an innings which lasted for one over, he made two runs, not out, and had to console himself for the cutting short of his performance by the fact that his average for the school was still infinity. Bob, who was one of those lucky enough to have an unabridged innings, did better in this match, making twenty-five. But with Morris making a hundred and seventeen, and Barrage, Ellerby, and Marsh all passing the half-century, this score did not show up excessively. We now come to what was practically a turning point in Mike's career at Ricken. There is no doubt that his meteor-like flights at cricket had an unsettling effect on him. He was enjoying life amazingly, and, as is not uncommon with the prosperous, he waxed fat and kicked. Fortunately for him, though, he did not look upon it in that light at the time. He kicked the one person it was most imprudent to kick. The person he selected was Furby Smith. With anybody else, the thing might have blown over, to the detriment of Mike's character. But Furby Smith, having the most tender affection for his dignity, made a fuss. It happened in this way. The immediate cause of the disturbance was a remark of Mike's, but the indirect cause was the unbearably patronizing manner which the head of Wayne's chose to adopt towards him. The fact that he was playing for the school seemed to make no difference at all. Furby Smith continued to address Mike merely as the small boy. The following verbatim was the tactful speech which he addressed to him on the evening of the MCC match, having summoned him to his study for the purpose. "'Well,' he said, "'you played a very decent innings this afternoon, and I suppose you're frightfully pleased with yourself, eh? Well, mind you don't go getting swelled heads, see? That's all. Run along.' 
Mike departed, bursting with fury. The next link in the chain was forged a week after the gentlemen of the county match. House matches had begun, and Wayne's were playing Applebee's. Applebee's made a hundred and fifty odd, shaping badly for the most part against Wyatt's slows. Then Wayne's opened their innings. The Gazeka, as head of the house, was captain of the side, and he and Wyatt went in first. Wyatt made a few mighty hits, and was then caught at cover. Mike went in first wicket. For some ten minutes all was peace. Furby Smith scratched away at his end, getting here and there a single, and now and then a two, and Mike settled down at once to play what he felt was going to be the innings of a lifetime. Appleby's bowling was on the feeble side, with rakes of the third eleven as the star, supported by some small change. Mike pounded it vigorously. To one who had been brought up on Saunders, rakes possessed few subtleties. He had made seventeen and was thoroughly set, when the Gazeka, who had the bowling, hit one in the direction of cover point. With a certain type of batsman, a single is a thing to take big risks for, and the Gazeka badly wanted that single. "'Come on!' he shouted, prancing down the pitch. Mike, who had remained in his crease with the idea that nobody even moderately sane would attempt to run for a hit like that, moved forward in a startled and irresolute manner. Furby Smith arrived, shouting, "'Run!' and— cover having thrown the ball in, the wicket-keeper removed the bales. These are solemn moments. The only possible way of smoothing over an episode of this kind is for the guilty man to grovel. Furby Smith did not grovel. "'Easy run there, you know,' he said reprovingly. The world swam before Mike's eyes. Through the red mist he could see Furby Smith's face. The sun glinted on his rather prominent teeth. To Mike's distorted vision it seemed that the criminal was amused. "'Don't laugh, you grinning ape!' he cried. "'It isn't funny!' He then made for the trees where the rest of the team were sitting. Now Furby Smith not only possessed rather prominent teeth, he was also sensitive on the subject. Mike's shaft sank in deeply. The fact that emotion caused him to swipe at a straight half-volley— miss it, and be bold next ball, made the wound rankle. He avoided Mike on his return to the trees, and Mike, feeling now a little apprehensive, avoided him. The Gazeka brooded apart for the rest of the afternoon, chewing the insult. At close of play he sought Burgess. Burgess, besides being captain of the eleven, was also head of the school. He was the man who arranged prefects' meetings, and only a prefect's meeting, thought Furby Smith, could adequately avenge his lacerated dignity. "'I want to speak to you, Burgess,' he said. "'What's up?' said Burgess. "'You know young Jackson in our house. What about him?' "'He's been frightfully insolent.' "'Cheeked you?' said Burgess, a man of simple speech. "'I want you to call a prefect's meeting and lick him.' Burgess looked incredulous. "'Rather a large order, a prefect's meeting,' he said. "'It has to be a pretty serious sort of thing for that.' "'Frightful cheek to a school prefect is a serious thing,' said Furby Smith, with the air of one uttering an epigram. "'Well, I suppose. What did he say to you?' Furby Smith related the painful details. Burgess started to laugh, but turned the laugh into a cough. "'Yes,' he said meditatively, "'rather thick.' 
Still, I mean, a prefect's meeting, rather like crushing a thing of me with a what-do-you-call-it. Besides, he's a decent kid. He's frightfully conceited. Oh, well, well, anyhow, look here, I'll think it over and let you know tomorrow. It's not the sort of thing to rush through without thinking about it. And the matter was left temporarily at that. End of chapter 14 End of section